spoken lately. I haven't thought about flying for a long time. I have a dream that at the moment when I was alone above the clouds for a long time. Have dreamed waking up in a room surrounded in blue and green grass. More years than I could dream of memory. I haven't walked back into the past or scratched on the doors of my origins. Where it all came from since I held up that cape. Return to Kent Town 10th year anniversary edition is a revised version of Ambien's first poetry book. The book can be purchased from Amazon and it contains numerous additional material. Spoken Label. Thank you today for tuning in to Spoken Label. Spoken Label was originally set up at the beginning of 2016 and as of recording has over 200 sessions in our archive. Although the podcast can be heard on Anchor, iTunes, Apple, Spotify, YouTube and literally 10 or 11 other networks. The full archive can be found at Spoken Label, all one word, spokenlabel.bandcamp.com. On the Bandcamp, it is set as pay what you want, so you are entitled, if you wish, you can download it or stream it for nothing. But if you throw me a couple of pennies my way, it is always eternally grateful to help me maintain the operating costs and future running costs for this podcast. Enjoy. Spoken Label. Hi guys, and the end. Spoken Label, back in the house. And I'm back on Zoom again today. And I've got a writer we were just chatting about before. I reckon I met him originally about five years ago. I had a lovely little reading I happened around Ashton and Denton Libraries just after I moved into the area. And we've become, again, recently reacquainted through Black Cat Poets over in Denton. It's great. He's a fantastic writer and great fun. So, Mark, can you introduce yourself to everybody? Tell me who you are and where, where, what, where are you writing led from? I'm going to start from there. Yes, thank you, Andy, and thank you very much for inviting me today. Yeah, um, I was born in the Peak District far more years ago than I wish to count. Um, Went and studied medicine in Edinburgh, left medicine in the uh, 1980s, um, got into research, moved back into the Peak District to look after my parents and took up, uh, started an editing business and then took up fiction writing. Um, That was in 2002. I would wish the curtain of charity to be drawn over the, my first attempts to write fiction. Um, I, I didn't actually get any, any fiction published for a few years, then one or two stories in magazines. And in 2008, my first volume of short stories came out in, um, in Canada. Um, yeah, of course, with this been an audio podcast, do you want to tell people what that book is, Mark? You just showed us. Oh, yes, okay. Of course, it's audio, it's not a visual recording, is it? No. Yeah. It's, it's called Rope Trick uh, 13 Strange Tales. And uh, it was uh, just, a, just a collection of. Uh, it was a, the Ghost Story Society, uh, their publisher, um, took it on. Uh, there are no ghosts in it, but there might as well be. <laughs> uh, Obviously, um, what I've noticed a lot of your work, Mark, is you do tend to like doing lots of about folk tales, don't you, as well? Like in a lot of local works. So where did all this interest come from? Then? 
Well, it was about the same time that I started to take up fiction, Andy, shortly ah, after, back into yeah. the Beaconsfield. Because I'd only been back here for two, three weeks when um, I, I took my, my uh, late father down to the local church service and met, um, uh, met someone there who said, we're running a local storytelling group. Uh, you know, would you like to come along? This was really just to, to, to socialise me in the community, as it were. So I went along and I went along to a couple of meetings and discovered that there were people telling stories, but nobody told local stories. And I knew there were some. Because back when I was a teenager, I'd heard someone tell it, telling a few Peak District folk tales. So I started chasing them up and I went to um, storytelling workshops to learn how to tell them properly. And ultimately, I, I, I got a collection of them together and I published the collection of uh, folk tales uh, in 2011 through Amberley Publishing in Gloucestershire. Um, it's a little, there's just a collection of 62 um, Peak District folk tales. And now, at the moment, with this lockdown going on, there are no gigs. But um, when there isn't a lockdown, I do storytelling gigs and, uh, and tell them to any audience that can be locked in for long enough. And I, I know you get around a lot doing it, don't you? So that's why. So, so I've, I've heard your name come in quite a few areas, certainly myself. So. Uh, yes, I, I do. It's. Um, you know, I'm, I'm as far north as um, Hebden Bridge, you know, and actually a little bit further. I've, I've done a lot of in Haworth. And, wow. uh, and, you know, I've been in Nottingham and Derby and, and regularly in Matlock. So, yes, I around a bit. Yes. Do you find, and obviously with your reading in so many different areas, does your reaction to your work change all the time, does it, do you think? Um, you mean in, in terms of storytelling? Yeah. storytelling itself, you have the audience about that. You've got to adapt to the audience. You know, it's like any sort of speaking. Uh, you know, the, the first thing you consider is the audience, and the second thing um, is the material. So you always adapt to the audience. Um, so, for example, if I'm, um, if I'm doing storytelling to the, the Rotary Club, um, I, I don't tend to start with one of the more overtly um, left-wing stories, right? Um, uh, and uh, on the other hand, if I'm telling to a, a group of, um, you know, elderly ladies, uh, I, I tend to leave out anything which, which is, um, uh, you know, 18 plus content. Yeah, I mean, you're a bit selective from the content. Not to be a bit selective, yes. Yeah, no, I'll get uh, it completely without some. The, the general pattern is that you should take a mixture of stories. You start off with something amusing and then tell something a bit sadder or more serious um, and introduce something which is kind of weird or mysterious and so on. You just um, change change mood to mood so the audience doesn't get, get tired of it. Yeah, I'm getting complete. Do you find that obviously over time, because obviously you've been having stuff publishing on a steady stream for some years, do you think your approach your approach to your writing actually changed much? I think I well, I, I'd like to think I've got better. My my first novel was published in um in 2009 in, in the States. And uh, it was okay. It just didn't, it didn't do very well. 
but I have recently looked at that novel again and rewritten it in three quarters of the length, despite having added more material. And that is now sitting with a different publisher from uh, the one who's published more of my work. Um, and I, I await a response. But, you know, in that respect, I think I've improved. So that's, that's my evidence for saying I've improved. <laughs> no, I get it completely. Now, obviously, like, um, do you want to tell people a little bit about some of your books, Sam? Let's work over some of the few of your books, because I know you through your Cruel and Unusual Punishments book, which I bought off you in Ashton Library a few years ago. <laughs> yes, that was published at the end of 2016. Um, it's, uh, it's called Cruel and Unusual Punishments, with an extra N in punishments. And it's just a collection of um, little bits of comic verse and uh, little prose pieces, each of which uh, contains at least one horrendous pun. I remember that. I remember reading it. I remember seeing you read, reading that several times now. The puns are brilliant. <laughs> Well, it, it, it amuses people and it makes them all groan. Um, <laughs> my, uh, my, my lady friend says they're absolutely dreadful. And, uh, <laughs> dreadful, but good, definitely, right? So, now, obviously, yeah. then, we'll just go, go around the listings. Obviously, I know some of these books are, I know more than others. Now, obviously, tell people what's about your folk tales of the Peak District. Then. I'm reading it in order in Amazon, so... <laughs> Right. Yes. Well, um, Folk Tales was published in in uh, in twenty eleven. Of course, uh, I, I, I it was a really comprehensive package of sixty two stories. Well, there can't be any more. Of course, three months after I published it, I knew three more. <laughs> this is that's, the way that's typical. I've, I've learned more since. So yes, I know. But uh, but but that's good. You know, it means that I could actually probably publish a supplement at some point. Um, but. You know, there are some, um, there are some from uh, where I live in, in, uh, in Glossop um, and some from further out in the Peak District. And there is actually some regional variation within the Peak District, oh, which right. is fascinating. That is interesting, um, yeah. Now, people will say that the Peak District, you know, geographically, geologically, is divided into the Dark Peak and the White Peak. The Dark Peak being uh, a hard type of sandstone rock uh, and it's characterized by the high moors with a lot of peat and heather. The White Peak is limestone country uh, with the limestone dales. Oh, and there's the stories between the Dark Peak and the White Peak, which is which is intriguing. Um, you know, there's a certain kind of rough humor in the Dark Peak that you don't quite get in the White Peak stories. <laughs> When you get into the southwest of the Peak District, the Staffordshire Moorlands area and the hilly bit of Cheshire, uh, the villages are very much isolated from one another. And some very strange and really quite, in some cases, quite rather horrible stories have, um, have survived in a way that they haven't in the rest of the, the Peak District. There are more stories about fairy folk. Um, uh, there's actually a story about cannibalism in the southwest. Wow. Wow, <laughs> isn't it? Um, you wouldn't get anywhere else. But I, I have told—I've been to gigs in various of uh, the Southwest Peak villages, and been talking to them about their stories. And I've told one, and uh, I've got, oh no, no, that's that, that's not one of our stories. That's from over there, referring to a, a village eight miles away. 
and you actually get that in, in the southwest peak, which you don't get over the rest of the Peak District. Wow, oh, brilliant. So does a lot of your research come from word, like word of mouth people telling you stories all the time, does it all? Well, the sources have been varied. Um, I've collected some directly from um, just from villagers or from you know, stories that I've heard people telling in, in the pub almost. Mm. Or around, you're just meeting and chatting in the, in the countryside. Some I've heard from other storytellers. Uh, some I've got from other published sources, from other collections. Uh, almost all of these stories I've heard in more than one version. So, of course, I put my own versions together from them. Of course, yeah. Of course, yeah. Mm -hmm. you, yeah, so you do it. You might hear the story, then you, you have to adapt it yourself, isn't it? So, your version, yeah. Yeah, it's got to be my voice, okay? And, uh, and as I've said before, you've got to adapt to the audience that you're speaking to. So, you never tell any story the same way twice. Um, yeah, yeah, of course. It's like, it, that's what I noticed when you like him. Obviously, you may do reading a piece of paper, sometimes you do it. Do it the other way, in like case it can never stay the same. Uh, anything like that's completely get it completely with that. So now, that's right. Yeah. Where did uh, your inspiration for murders and days at Winnock's Pass come from? Oh well, now that uh, that actually is a technical book. It's not actually oh, a, right. a it's not a novel. Um, but it is one of the Peak District folk tales. It's a local legend. Um, and when I first came across that. I was fascinated by the story because it's one of the few murder stories you will ever hear where all the murderers are named and the victims are not. Oh, that's interesting, straight away. Uh, so I, I was fascinated by that. And then I found that there were so many different versions of it uh, that I wanted to try to trace it back to its origin. And this led me to the most extraordinary um, few months of research. Uh, and the product of the few months of research was that book. Ah, it's, right, you get now, yeah, yeah. It's the story about the story, um, how it came to be, and and how it's evolved, and why it's evolved as it has as the Peak District has changed. It, the stories adapt as they were to their environments, um, in a way that's sort of analogous to biological adaptation. Right, right, I get you now, yeah, completely with it. So, oh, brilliant, interesting, interesting. Now, obviously, I'm, I'm, tell us about, um, you've done a biography as well, haven't you, of, is it St. Augustus of Glossendale? Oh, no, no. That is, that's a joke. Um, ah, right, I guess that was a joke then. So St. Augustus did not exist. It is a purely fictional character. Um, I, I got um, friends within, within Texas, uh, a very small publishing house called Gypsy Shadow. And uh, they, they published a little children's story that I wrote in, in, uh, in 2010 uh, called Fenella and the Magic Mirror. Uh, and when I wrote the little novelette, it's a 13,000 word piece, um, uh, St. Arvorius and his thin dog, uh, I, I got uh, Gypsy Shadow to publish it again. Um, they very kindly said, send anything you send us, we will publish, but you, you can't take advantage of that. It's not fair. <laughs> However, um, the, the, the inspiration <laughs> of St. Alborius and his thin dog, the definitive biography of St. Alborius and his thin dog as the title, um, was a, 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 an old friend of mine who kept a whippet. Um, and the whippet had 
they had personality, uh, no attitude rather than personality. Um, it, it, you could get the most baleful glare from that dog. And uh, yes, the the uh, the owner said, um, "It's just trying to work out what kind of an asshole you are." Uh, so uh, that's her most polite word. I promise you. Um, and she said that that dog is is you know is the most unsmiling character. Um, if she ever wags her tail and it hits you, you discover that it's really the whip bit of whip it. Um, uh, so this personality of the dog, it just, I, I, it had to be captured in, in fiction. So it became the guardian spirit of, um, of this little novice monk and is responsible for all the miracles. Now, obviously, I know we, you mentioned, obviously, Fellaini and the Magic Mirror as well, which obviously was done before that book. So that's how I've just, I've, that I've actually been reading the whole, actually. It's great, it's good, she's great fun as well. So where did the inspiration for writing Back to the Children's book, that one come from as well? Um, I was a member of a, a, an online writing group um, with some, some friends in the States, and, and it was just simply exchanging ideas with them. Um, one or two of them were writing children's stories. Ah, so right. I got this idea about what would happen if you found a mirror um, and uh, when you looked into it, what you saw was what you most feared. I get you. Completely brilliant. Um, and uh, the, the story involves a dragon. Um so yes, it's it's it is fantasy, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so it's not going to be hard for te te detective noir or that sort of thing, isn't it? <laughs> um, did you find it obviously? You know, you write, you do write, don't just stick one sort of genre in your writing. How did you find writing those two kids' books in contrast to your folk tales and stuff like that? Um, it was fun to do, but I don't really think of myself as a children's writer. You know, Fenella has gone down very well with some, some children's audiences. Um, though the, I, I quite deliberately make the vocabulary challenging for, uh, for young people. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and, uh, you know, you're going to have words there you don't know. Go and look them up. Um, so, you know, I, I don't want to be too prescriptive and, and, and too pedagogical um, in, in writing. But on the other hand, if you could increase a, a child's vocabulary you've done good yeah yeah completely i get completely with that now the other book of those i think i can see and you'll tell me there'd be probably others was rope trick we did 13 strange tales it was my first published fiction book oh, was it really oh well <laughs> yeah it was uh, published in canada in 2008 uh i started my, my first fiction publications were in magazines as everybody's are mm. and one of the magazines that accepted a couple of my stories was called All Hallows as the magazine of the Ghost Story Society. Right, right, okay. that um, explains why. And, uh, they particularly liked one story and put it into one of their anthologies, in fact they put it as the first story in a, an anthology they put together in 2007 called Acquainted with the Night and at that point they said would I like to put together all my stories and they would 
published them as a collection. Oh, uh, brilliant. Yeah. Sweet of them. Um, so that was it. Rope, tick, um, Rope Trick is the, is the title story. Um, but again, it's quite a mixture. Um, and uh, yeah, they're, they're all slightly weird. There are no actual ghosts in any of them. Uh, you know, so they're, 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 they're things that ought to be ghost stories, but aren't quite. Yeah, 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 of course. Okay, completely myself. Do you have any, do you have any sort of ideas what, you, what you're going to be writing next and on? What's coming out next? Do you have any, sort of, any ideas in the current moment? Oh, yes. Um, I have um, a book, uh, a, a novella, 30 um, odd thousand words, about to appear, which oh, is good. called Cat Doom. Um, it's described as a surreal apocalyptic fantasy. Uh, so it's about a, a, a very weird build-up to the apocalypse and involves some uh, strange characters, including a pack of mangy dogs uh, and a garden gnome who um, is impolite to people. So uh, it's... it's it's a bit weird, but I mean, it's full of, of um, little bits of poetry and little bits of song. I put some music to some of it. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant, sir. No, that sounds good then, straight away. I know you, you're obviously telling me off mic before, though, you've got the dreaded novel ones done as well, haven't you now? So you're, you're certainly on track with them, this dreaded and um, the big novel, aren't you, as well? So is there anything you want to reveal about that? Well, um, okay, my... Uh, my first novel was published in the States in 2009 and it wasn't really a great success. Um, and uh, then there was the folktale book and the murders in the Willis Pass. And then it was a silence from me because it was in the um, later days of my, my mother's life and it was really round the clock caring. Uh, and trying to run a business, look after the house um, and, and be a full-time carer as well. Uh, rather, rather uh, put the kibosh on my fiction writing. Oh yeah, completely. Yeah, you want to get you need sleep then, basically, don't you? <laughs> you do that as well. Yeah, it's basically it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, of course, completely. So uh, after she passed away, I I, um, I started trying to write again um, and struggled to get back into it. But the next thing that was published after that was the book you mentioned earlier, the cruel and unusual punishments. Yeah. Um, so I, I put those little collection together. After that, I became a little bit more fluent again. Um, and the following year after Cruel and Unusual Punishments, um, Fantastic Books uh, Publishing brought out uh, National Cake Day in Ruritania, which is a, a massive satire on just about everything. Um, as one of my... Um, uh, readers and positive commentators said it doesn't actually satirise custard but it just about gets everything else <laughs> you know, politics economics law medicine science religion um, and fairy tales all many of the things of which mean a great deal to me i i managed to have a bit of a laugh at them and, uh, and the, of course, the main thing is to tell a story. Of course, yeah, completely. Uh, and then uh, last year, uh, the same publishing company, uh, FBP, brought out a book called The Enclimostat. The Enclimostat is a novel which addresses the question, what would happen 
to the country? What would happen to our society and to our economy if it suddenly became impossible to commit any crime um, or even to consider to contemplate crime? Um, and the point I'm making is that crime is actually economically necessary. Um, it is so fundamental to the structure of our society, not only because of criminals themselves, but the whole apparatus of law enforcement and punishment. The police, the judiciary, the, uh, the, the, uh, the lawyers, <clears throat> the crime reporters, the manufacturers of safety equipment, the, and so on and so on. Um, that it has um, fingers in every aspect of the economy. And if crime suddenly became inconceivable and impossible, you would have a collapse. Of course, yeah, completely so. Okay, now obviously, um, the last bit I want to touch on, obviously, on the interview chats is about, obviously, your method of writing yourself. Do you find, um, do you have a set pattern you do your writing? Is or do you, I know you're running your own business as well, aren't you? So is it just, I mean, you get gaps a lot of the time, is it time to spare? Yes, I, I mean, for example, I'm, I'm at the moment writing a historical novel, which is about um, the uh, our Elizabethan folk hero in Glossopdale, who, when Lord Shrewsbury, the landlord, tried to uh, increase the rent on the farmholds by a massive amount, um, he, um, Harry Botham, the, the, the hero, um, said, oh no, you don't, um, and took the case to the Privy Council in London. Oh, yes. At least four times over a period of about four years. And he won. Good man. He, he got the rents reduced again. Good um, he lost his own farmhold in the process. You know, he suffered for it. But um, but what an extraordinary achievement. Yeah, some going that is respect to the guy, definitely. Nobody knows about him except for a few specialist historians, and even they, they don't know very much. So, so I thought this story has to be told. Yeah, yeah, no, I get it completely. Sometimes you do some of that sort of thing, don't you? If it's you find that something grabs you to that level, you think, oh, I've got to write that. I mean, it has to be told, yeah. This has to be told. Yeah, yeah, no, get, get you completely with that. No, good luck, but definitely some look forward to reading it. If people want to find out more about you, Mark, where are the best going? Um, well, I, I do have a website, and I've put a few blogs on there, which, you know, very intermittently. I mean, I, sometimes months go by and I don't write a blog, and then I write three, three in a week. Uh, so it's very irregular. Um, so they can go to that. Uh, yes. um, Mark com is quite simple. Um, then they can go to Amazon and look my name up there. Uh, Mark P. Henderson. Put the P in the middle, otherwise you'll get a different Mark Henderson who writes about different things. Yeah, um, which we were talking about before. It's an eye-opening. Yes, okay. Uh, but I've got an author page on uh, on Amazon, which gives a little rundown on all, all my published books. Okay, so they can find out a little about me there. Uh, so that that's um, that's about as much as anybody would wish to know, I think. <laughs> Definitely. But it's been brilliant today. Thank you, Mark. 
Now, obviously, you're going to read out a few bits for us in the second half, so every hang around is well worth always hearing Mark read. So entertaining he is. So thank you again. Thank you. See you all in a few minutes, guys. Take care. Spock, mate. Hi, guys. I've got the best bit now. Straight over to Mark. He's going to do a selection of pieces for us. I'm looking forward to this. Over to you, my friend. Thank you very much, Andy. Well, you, earlier you mentioned the, my collection of folk tales. Um, so let me just tell one of those. This comes from my own neck of the woods uh, in Glossop, and I collected it when I was a teenager. Um, I didn't realise at the time it was a folk tale until I heard versions of it in other parts of the Peak District with names and locations changed. Now, it, it concerns old Bill Shepherd who used to go up to the, his favourite pub just outside the cemetery gates on the top of the hill. Uh, it was called the Arundel Arms, except nobody called it that. It was always locally known as the Deadmans. Now, Bill used to walk up from his, his, his cottage in the village uh, to go to the Deadmans, you know, two or three nights a week. Uh, and, and his path took him into the cemetery, and he walked through the cemetery and out through the gates and into the pub. And he'd have a, two or three pints and, and he'd have a game of dominoes with his friends and, and chat about local gossip and the football and the cricket. And then uh, as closing time approached, he would put on his flat hat and his jacket and say, good day to everybody, and off he would go. He, he was fine, everybody liked him. He had one eccentric habit. As he was uh, drinking his final pint of the evening just before departure, he would thump the table and announce, Om nom fear de note, which uh, for native English speakers, I should explain, means I am not afraid of anything. And he would repeat the sentiment, finish his pint, then run out everybody and off he would go. Now the years passed and uh, Bill uh, walked rather more slowly and with the aid of a stick, but he still went his two or three evenings a week um, up the path through the village from the village through the cemetery to the Deadman's two or three pints with his game of dominoes and his chat and as he was drinking last night he bang his stick on the floor bang 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 I'm not fear to note um, and then good night everybody and off he would go back through the cemetery and back down the path to the village one evening three of the younger denizens of the the Deadman's decided it was time Bill's boast was tested so a few minutes before closing time, they sneaked out of the pub and into the cemetery. It was autumn, it was a coolish night, fairly cloudy. Um, main thing was it was dark. So they hid behind gravestones beside the path where uh, Bill was going to walk on his way home. And one of the trio availed himself of a large white sheet, which he wrapped around himself. Sure enough, a few minutes after closing time, crunch, 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 Bill's boots and stick on the gravel path. They waited until he was about five yards away, and then the, the lad wearing the, the sheet crept out from behind his gravestone right across the path in front of Bill. I'm gonna find me grave! I'm gonna find me grave! And Bill stopped dead in his tracks, stared at the apparition lifted his stick and cracked the fellow across the back of the neck. There's no business out of the bloody grave at this time of night. 
that is always a good story to start a gig. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a brilliant one to start. Thank you for that. Yeah, brilliant stuff indeed. Um, um, you, you mentioned a little publication in Cruel and Unusual Punishments that was um, uh, published in, um, in 2016, the end of 2016, and uh, it contains all sorts of little pieces. Um, I, I just want one, one little piece perhaps from it. Um, which one? Which one indeed? Um, perhaps I could read. Um, yes, Hamish, a cautionary fable. On Hamish, what's his name? McTavish, sympathy you must not lavish. You should not his fate bewail in this instructive moral tale. He was a master of deception, sly obreption and subreption, always apt to chance his luck and seek to make a dubious buck. He seemed to ply an honest trade and for his labours he was paid as painter and as decorator, quite an income generator. Trade for him was never slow, for Hamish kept his prices low, so he won contracts far and near. Success thought all in his career. How did he keep his prices down? The question spread from town to town, but never were his means detected, nor were they even much suspected. Hamish, I fear, was not a saint. Invariably, he thinned his paint. A tin for ten square yards with plenty made dilute to cover twenty. When the preacher launched a search for one to paint the Baptist church, his team of trained negotiators talked to a dozen decorators. True to their business-like agenda, they opted for the lowest tender. Thus, despite his plan to rob, Hamish McTavish got the job. With paint well thinned, he set to work and smirked a surreptitious smirk. He painted all the roof sky blue and made the walls look good as new. He brightened up the double doors, the window frames, the steps and more. But judgment now was beckoning and soon there came a reckoning. The sky grew dark, the clouds grew thick and then it made McTavish sick Torrential rain began to fall and washed the paint from roof and wall. The storm left Hamish in the lurch, for very soon the Baptist church was just as ere the job was started. Hamish stood soaked and broken-hearted. Lightning flashed and thunder cried. McTavish then was terrified and fell upon his knees dismayed and for forgiveness loudly prayed. The sky grew darker still, like lead. Then, from directly overhead, there came the loud celestial roar. Repaint! Repaint! And thin no more. Brilliant. Brilliant. Rather typical of that book. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely. <laughs> uh, you've got to do one from one of your other books now, aren't you, as well? Yes, so. uh, just uh, the opening piece of um, 
when I, I wrote a National Cake Day in Ruritania, which is really just a massive satire on everything, um, one thing that started this story, I mean, I just wanted to write a huge satire in a fantasy setting, um, uh, but I'd been to a, a, in, in a writing group, we got an interesting challenge in which we selected uh, from uh, randomly from various hats a series of characteristics for a, for a, a, for a character. Um, and I picked a philosopher for profession, a marathon runner for sport, yeah. a Morris dancer for, um, for hobby, and a kleptomaniac for foible. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. That gave me the protagonist of National Cake Day in Ruritania. I begin each chapter with a little uh, su supposed quotation from a work that doesn't actually exist. But this is written by Cerberus D. Gardog, um, a college porter's reflections of unconventional undergraduates. Um, and this is the opening of chapter one. Although there was no conclusive evidence, the authorities felt the incident with the examination papers left them no alternative but to terminate Rory Redmond's association with the college. Everyone was sorry to see him sent down, particularly the ladies, though many believed his departure made their possessions less likely to disappear. But it was never certain whether the, which allegations against him were true and which were fanciful. For instance, did he really steal the woolen socks that Professor Multiple had been wearing during dinner in the Great Hall? Mr. Redmond both returned both socks to the barefoot professor that same evening while the porch was being passed, by which time one of them was full of lumpy custard and the other of stewed prunes. But theft could not be proved. However, nothing was ever proved might stand some day as Rory Redmond's epitaph. What is certain is that his expulsion deprived the university of one of its best ever marathon runners and Morris dancers, and one of its gift, most gifted young logicians. So it's just a way of introducing a character, so information dumping without appearing to be an information dump. Yeah, but that's a good writing. Yeah, it's a good way of doing it, definitely. So. Now, um, weren't you going to conclude with a folktale for us today, weren't you, as well? Uh, well, I began with one. Um, you know, I, I could... I'm trying to think of another one that's reasonably short. Um, and I don't want to tell anything too gloomy. <laughs> um, but... Um, I, I, it would be easier, I think, if I were just to read a little bit from another novel. Yeah, yeah, that'd be fine. That'd be great for a conclusion, anyway, yeah. Okay. Um, um, this is the, the Enclimistat, and the Enclimistat is um, a, a, a story, a novel, which hovers on the theme, what will happen? Uh, what would happen to society if crime became impossible? Um, of course, this could only be achieved by supernatural means. So it turns out to be a plot by an ambitious young demon from the University of Pandemonium, otherwise known as Hell. Um, and um, 
in the prologue of the book, we have a, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the description of him. In pandemonium, as in any university, nothing fails like success. Many senior staff considered him too clever by half. His wounding encounter with Occam's razor, which he vowed thereafter to blunt, excluded him from contention for a faculty post. The incident and the oath earned him the name Hypostates. He was obliged to seek positions in mortal institutions, and the United Kingdom was his stamping ground. He applied for a research assistantship. Sebastian Fust was a temporary lecturer in a distinguished physics department. His prospects of tenure depended on publications, a commonplace hammered home daily by the subtle innuendos of his superiors. To help him produce publishable work, he advertised for a research assistant. One applicant stood out, though the head of department was dubious. He seems a remarkable polymath, Sebastian, but his credentials are difficult to verify. Uh, nevertheless, I, I suppose an interview is in order. Would you give me your name, sir? smiled the secretary. Fortunately, she was sitting down. He was the sexiest thing she'd ever seen. He oozed courtesy and menace. He was tall, shapely and disconcerting, and he moved with fluid grace on small feet. His hair was pitch black, his face long and intelligent, his chin pointed and his forehead high and, uh, and double-domed uh, double with an exaggerated widow's peak. His nose was hooked, and the edges of his thin-lipped mouth curved upwards in a sardonic smile. His ears seemed almost pointed. His fingers were long and narrow. She wished she could recall the colour of his eyes. Tears, he replied. His voice was deep and sibilant, and sent shivers down the secretary's spine. She looked at his hands and fantasised. Uh, um, uh, how do you smell that, sir? How would you like to spell it? queried the sardonic lips. She crossed her legs, wrote something, and asked for forenames. Forenames? Not Christian names any longer. How satisfactory. I think initials will suffice. H.S. During the interview with young Sebastian Fust and his ageing professor, H.S.T.'s remained fascinating and elusive. He was au fait with British University teaching and research in numerous fields, but no specifics could be listed. At length the professor grew impatient. I was still uncertain not to tease whether you have a, a clear grasp of basic physics. Suppose I asked you to prepare an undergraduate tutorial on, 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 on a simple harmonic motion. How would you proceed? HSTs studied the professor with a gourmet smile. A slow minute ticked by in silence. The ticking was rhythmic, soporific. Under the interviewee's unyielding gaze, the professor began to sway to and fro in tie with an invisible pendulum, conscious only that he was in the presence of a preternaturally gifted candidate and a powerful communicator. He was a perceptive professor. 
Great stuff, that. Great way of finishing today, that, Mark. It's been a pleasure just today. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, Andy, and thank you very much for the afternoon. Yeah, it's been a great fun today. Now, obviously, as I always do, hang around, I need a quick word of your mic. But thank you again, it's been a great fun. Hopefully, I'll get to see you soon on the other side of this virus as well, Mark. I so hope so, indeed. It's always a pleasure seeing you, mate. So, right. Anyway, guys and girls, I hope you enjoyed it today. The most important is stay safe and stay sane if possible. This is Andy N. Signing out. See you all soon, guys. Take care. Bye. Spock on there.